Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the TSG Podcast. Just a huge disclaimer before we begin that all content produced on this channel is for education and entertainment purposes only. Enjoy the episode. All right, Sean, welcome, welcome, everyone. Hey, how are you doing, Sean? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I can't wait until uh, we talk about today's topic. So today's topic, Sean, do you want to explain to everyone what we're going to be discussing today and what you shared with me earlier this week? Uh, Yeah, I shared a podcast with with Preston Pish, Mm -hmm. who uh, is a value investor, but unlike a lot of value investors, he... uh, invested into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so I shared a podcast with Indy that, Mm -hmm. uh, that where he explains sort of his journey uh, Mm -hmm. through investing into uh, Bitcoin and some other stuff as well. But, (laughs) and what was this podcast called that he was on? Uh, I think it was the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Okay, so if you guys haven't checked it out yet, check them out. I just listened to the first episode ever from them because of Sean here's, And it was actually a really interesting episode. I actually don't know who the host's name is, so I should have done more homework on that. But you know what? I was, I was driving back home from work and I was listening and it was very intriguing. So, Sean, what got you to listen to that podcast and why did this podcast really just stick out was it because you knew that Preston was a value investor and that's something that you wanted to go into or you are into and then you know uh then he started talking about bitcoin or or how how did you come across this um i listen to lots of podcasts i'm a big podcast listener and um i i'm subscribed to a lot of bitcoin related podcasts and um I usually check out Preston Pish when he's on whatever podcast, whether it's his own podcast or someone else's. Um, Mm -hmm. He's always got interesting stuff to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I've been interested in value investing for a long time. And Mm -hmm. uh, recently I've been wanting to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. And um, I also remembered we had had some discussion Yes, we did. <laughs> where Preston Pisk was mentioned. And so I know you know who he is. And I thought, yes. well, maybe uh, Indy would be interested in this podcast when I heard it. So I sent it to you. <laughs> so, yes, yes. I, I first heard of Preston Pish on his, uh, I think, original podcast, which is the Investors Podcast or the TIP uh, with Stig Burdison. And that was how I actually started learning more about value investing way back when I'm, I'm talking about this was back in 2000 and I don't know, 12, 2013, uh, when I was really intrigued by the idea of value investing. And so as a, as a person who's been heavily influenced in the value investing world, I was very shocked that Preston would actually go into Bitcoin because uh, for those of you who have watched the investment podcast, um, they're always talking about the Warren Buffett approach, the Charlie Munger approach, uh, the momentum investing, and all of all of those different types of value approaches. And one of the big things that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett always says about just any type of stored wealth, uh, in terms of gold or silver or precious metal is that it's not known to be a productive asset. 
And, and what that means is that you can buy gold and in the near future, if inflation rises and all of that, the price of gold will rise and you'll still have a stored buying power. However, it doesn't produce anything. So it's not like you're investing into a company or into Walmart where there's a revenue stream and it constantly produces something for the economy and through that builds the value in the company itself. And so I was super shocked uh, when you first told me that Preston was going into uh into Bitcoin. And I don't know how long he's been into the Bitcoin. I haven't kept up to date with him uh, in his path, uh, as I've been very focused on my own and my own growth and, and all of that. So, um, but yeah, let's, let's just go from here. So crypto, Bitcoin, hit, uh, Preston. Okay. So why, why Bitcoin? And I know we've talked about this already, but just just a refresher. So why is it that Bitcoin is such a huge thing? I, and why is it that you found that Preston was very like adamant about transitioning from the typical stock equity approach into a cryptocurrency approach? Um, I believe that it all comes down to money. Mm. And... Um, you know, a good place to start is to ask yourself, what is money? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, maybe I won't ask, answer that right now. I'll leave that as homework uh, <laughs> okay. for the, the listener. But um, when investing in stocks, um, one important sort of background issue is the question of bonds. Bonds are... Um, a different kind of investment through stock. They're essentially considered to be safer. Um, they are mm-hmm. essentially just a form of debt. Either a government or a company will uh, ask you for a hundred dollars usually, mm-hmm. and then they will promise you a little bit more money mm-hmm. uh, sometime in the future. Mm. And these safe returns um create sort of the floor for investment returns. They Mm -hmm. call it the risk-free investment rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And as the the, uh, Preston often refers to it as a hurdle rate because Mm -hmm. other investments need to get over that hurdle. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the prices of stocks are actually directly related to the prices of risk-free assets. Mm. Um, And what happens is when there are periods of time when these low risk bonds can actually make you a lot of money. And when you're making good money with this lower risk, that is much more attractive. So mm-hmm. money will flow out of stocks and into bonds. Um, at, at other times, bonds become less attractive and money flows out of bonds into stocks. Mm-hmm. What the U.S. government has been doing for a long time now, but a lot more intensely recently, mm-hmm. is they have been buying their own bonds. Um, 
the U.S. government issues a bond, and then the Federal Reserve will buy that same bond that was issued by the government. And, and that causes the, the uh, yield of the bond to go down, mm-hmm. which makes it a less attractive risk-free asset. Mm-hmm. And so that causes money to flow into other assets, into real estate, into stocks. Mm-hmm. And that in some ways beefs up the economy. So that's kind of the Federal Reserve's <clears throat> plan. You know, we're going to beef up the economy by manipulating the bonds. Um, but there's a lot of us who believe that this manipulation uh, can't go on forever. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, investors get increasingly concerned with this manipulation, uh, wanted to change. Um, and the, you know, from time to time, the bond rates will have to rise for economic reasons to, to, um, to, address inflation. So mm-hmm. if inflation gets too crazy, the Federal Reserve can address it by letting bond rates rise. They did this in the 70s, in the early 80s. Um, Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker mm-hmm. made the rates really high and that uh, stopped the inflation in the 1970s. Um, it caused a, an economic recession, but that short amount of economic pain contributed to uh, the next 10, 20 years of uh, positive economic growth. Mm-hmm. So nowadays, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, the the situation that Paul Walker was in and the situation that the Federal Reserve find themselves in now. And that is the U.S. national debt. The U.S. national debt is much, much larger. And if bond rates, if bond yields were to go up for an extended period of time, then that would mean uh, that uh, United States government interest payments on their debt would blow up, would, uh, you know, for every, I think for every percent, well, I don't know the exact numbers, but we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars just for minor increases in in bond yields Mm -hmm. uh, per year. So, so the government cannot raise rates to stop inflation, but we are going into a period of inflation. So Mm -hmm. in the eyes of a lot of people, they cannot not raise rates. Mm -hmm. So they're entering into a situation where they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and something's going to give. And basically probably what's going to happen is sometime in the next 10 years, there will be drastic changes to the way our, monetary system works Mm. um and you know it's it's hard to say exactly how that's going to happen but preston pish and others believe that this at some point we will have to go back to some kind of uh interest rates being set by the market the Mm. interest rates are set by the market uh without the federal reserve manipulation then bond yields will be higher Mm-hmm. And that means all equities will be replaced lower mm. by a lot. So, um, 
I think initially you asked me about why crypto, and then mm -hmm. I haven't said anything about crypto. Um, so back in, let's see, I think back in 1980, um, I think it was 1980, there was a chart that I saw that um, the price of all the stocks uh, was about equal to the price of all the gold. Mm -hmm. And that was because at that time, that was the risk return trade-off that a lot of investors were making. They were, you know, all the investors together were basically half gold, half stocks. Mm -hmm. Now gold is uh, 12 trillion, I believe. And stocks are much, much more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think stocks are maybe like 300 trillion. Um, but at any rate, there's, there's this huge mismatch between the risk return trade-offs that investors want and the risk return trade-offs that investors are forced into mm. by this bond issue. Now, Bitcoin, it intends to be a lower risk, long-term holding asset like gold. It intends to be uh, digital gold. Mm -hmm. Um Right now, it's still very volatile because it has a small market cap. And, you know, according to Bitcoin bulls like me and Prussian Tish, it will not have a small market cap for, for much longer. Um, it's going to have to grow to accommodate all the people that are going to want to use it to store some of their wealth. And um, as the idea is after equities get repriced uh, after this bond situation gets adjusted, then equities will be much more attractive. And in that sense, a value investor will want to go back to equities and start buying then. Mm. Um, so that's a good start. Do you have any thoughts or questions? Um, yeah, because I'm still trying to process everything. And this is the question that popped up in when I was listening to uh, Preston's uh, pretty much reason for going into it. And, and a, a lot of the time in the podcast, he was talking about the manipulation and how it's not fair to the average investor where we're putting in money. And again, I, I, I don't recall the words exactly. So I'm kind of paraphrasing uh, to my best of my understanding from what I can remember. But it, it's more of a manipulation on the centralized government that. Uh, they were able to bail out Wall Street multiple times. They were able to do a lot of funny shenanigans uh, when it shouldn't have happened. And hence why he was really adamant about going into Bitcoin uh, due to the decentralization as well as it's much harder to manipulate. And the one thing that, that is, it's still kind of, I'm still on the fence about is if, if we look at the history since the central bank and the Federal Reserve has been, you know, in, in effect, so to speak, I mean, at the point where it was incepted or incepted, at the point when it started, the whole equities market was already manipulated. Would you agree to that statement or am I off by, by understanding? Hmm. You're saying... Even going back to 
like when the Federal Reserve first began, the central banks first began, they were already manipulating the market at the time of inception. Right? Because um, they control the interest rate, they control the bond rate, and they're fluctuating up and down to hopefully bring the economy into a growth type pattern. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be the case? Um, I think they... Or, or is they, manipulation used a different way uh, nowadays. Sorry I think for there's been times. I think there's been times when they've had to manipulate it more. Okay. And I think um, after 2008 and after COVID mm-hmm. is probably when they've had to manipulate it the most. Okay, but it's always in a manipulative. You know, they're always having an effect on the overall market. Since I mean that in theory, that's what they were supposed to be doing, anyways. Yeah. Um. Maybe I th- okay. yes I think I think probably yes. Again, um, this is just to my understanding. I'm not an economics yeah. major. That's why I'm asking you because you have a business major. So this is just to my understanding. If I'm wrong, then please let me know. But yeah, I think that's true. I mean, part okay. of it is I'm searching my memory about the earliest uh, history. I believe it was uh, created in 1919. The Federal yes. Reserve. I think and, so. Um, mm-hmm. And. Uh, there was some criticism for the Federal Reserve not intervening enough in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think they've essentially ramped up over time. And there's also a question of what direction are they manipulating in? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, in the early 80s, like I brought up with Paul Volcker, they manipulated in the opposite direction mm. that they usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> because they're, they're, targets one of their goals i think they have mainly two goals one is to um keep prices stable mm-hmm. so they want they usually have a they have an inflation target of about one or two percent mm-hmm. uh that really kind of came out in a, in the 1990s and that was still only kind of a rule of thumb they may be raising it to like four percent mm-hmm. um now but um they oh and so they're they have sort of a mandate stabilize prices and try to promote um employment Mm. so low unemployment is one of their targets and they'll they'll intervene usually the idea is when unemployment gets too high they will loosen monetary policy Mm -hmm. and when possible they will tighten monetary Mm -hmm. policy and so recently uh it has not been possible for them to tighten monetary policy. They had there was an episode in 2019 where they tried to tighten and markets freaked out and they they backed off. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, as you go further back in time, you'll find there were times when they were able to tighten. So basically, they they you know, there's some kind of recession or increase in unemployment. They will loosen monetary policy, and then as the economy starts getting going again, the economy has enough momentum that as they slowly tighten monetary policy, mm-hmm. it doesn't bog down the economy. And that's and, usually their, what they're looking for. And tighten. this is what we call quantitative tightening. Um, that is part is that, of it. Okay. That's now, part of so it. they have, they have a variety of weapons that they could use. Mm-hmm. So their, their first go-to weapon is, uh, the federal funds rate. Mm. I believe that is a rate that banks can borrow from the Federal Reserve itself. And that <clears> is uh, a baseline. And we're talking about the central bank or are we just talking about a normal like 
bank on on the on the market? Uh, a regular, a normal bank on the market can okay. borrow from the Federal Reserve. Okay. Um, and I believe they can borrow at the federal funds rate. So that's usually the first uh, tool that they reach for. Um, since 2008, they've been reaching for a different tool, the quantitative easing tool. And so that is, uh, has more to do with buying U.S. Treasury bonds to, to change their, uh, their rate. Mm. Um, there's even further tools that they may reach for uh, in the future. So uh, in the future, what they may do is a tool called yield curve control which is basically, it's similar to quantitative easing, but the idea would be that in the bond market, you know, if a certain bond is uh, at is yielding 1.5% and they want it to go to, you know, 1.3%, they'll just say, we will buy whatever amount that it takes. If you want to sell us any bond for more than 1.3%, we will buy it, period. Mm. So... That is, uh, so it's like next level QE. And that may be uh, a tool that they reach for over the next one or two or three years. Mm. And then probably the final sort of inflationary tool, sort of tool of loosening is uh, to just give people money. Mm. They call it in, they call it helicopter money. Um, This could also be done by the, regular government process like in UBI or like in COVID where they wrote people checks. Uh, I think Preston Pish believes they're going to be doing that more in the future as they need more inflation. They will start just handing out checks, even probably without a disaster, probably mm-hmm. just giving people money. And this is, uh, and would, would this be analogous to printing of money more money? Yeah. Okay. And now there's some interesting nuances about printing like giving people money is the most i would say extreme sort of money printing aspect now when you're doing quantitative easing and buying bonds the effects of that are usually uh mainly felt by banks and large institutions that hold bonds and sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate into the wider economy as much as giving people money. Hmm. So like a lot of this inflation that we're seeing today, um, as far as, I mean, a lot of that is caused by supply issues. Mm -hmm. The thing about inflation, we should, I should step back and explain that is um, inflation can be caused by both changes in the supply of money and also by changes in the supply of goods. Mm-hmm. that you're trying to buy with that money, right? Mm-hmm. So it's there's two sides of an equation. Money's on one side, and the stuff you're trying to buy is on the other. Mm. If there's, you know, across the economy, less stuff, like during COVID when there was a supply chain shock, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, with geopolitical issues where commodities are less available, that's going to reduce the supply of goods, and that means all the prices will go up. Because the demand or, is higher. Yes. Okay. Or if they start giving everybody money, then uh, that just increases the money side of the equation. So when people go to uh, buy things, mm-hmm. 
the a higher price will be demanded because the money is there's more money floating around and it's essentially worth less. Mm. That's why our gas prices are pretty high now, isn't it? Darn. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think yeah, I think the gas prices. So I was listening to another interesting podcast. The gas prices. Uh, there's supply issues in gas related to Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also this guy who's sort of a gas expert, although he's, I don't think he's aligned with uh, the rest of his field, but he basically mm-hmm. believes that there is a long-term supply crunch coming like over mm-hmm. the, he called it the medium term. I don't know exactly what time frame he means by that, but maybe over the next three to five years, there will be a real lack of oil. And so hmm. he thinks there will be sustained high oil prices. And he thinks he thinks it'll be pretty extreme. Like, because right now with high oil prices, people have not really used less mm. because it hasn't hit them that hard. But he believes maybe sometime in the next three to five years that gas prices will have to go up until people start using less. Like mm. it'll be that kind of a supply issue. And with oil, that could be pretty extreme because people can't stop using it (laughs) so the price will go way up to make them stop using it that's just a hypothesis i don't know well i mean it makes sense because you know oil just petrol in general is is a finite resource and we're running out of it and i believe i read an article way back when uh where they say by 2050 we're going to be like 60 to 80 percent gone of all oil on the world and so just because of our daily consumption of it. And so we have to move in a direction of a renewable, sustainable form of energy uh, and use the, the remaining oil that we have to, you know, be able to produce um, these sustainable manufacturing places. So it makes sense, at least in, in my understanding, it does make a little bit of sense. So, yeah. 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 I've heard from... Uh, oil people who essentially think um, there's plenty more um, you know they're not concerned about the supply of oil and you know as the price of oil goes up Mm -hmm. the economic attractiveness of more extreme forms of oil extraction are unlocked basically Mm -hmm. Um, but and, and also a lot of people in the oil industry have been sort of uh, I can't think of the word right now, but it back in around 2005, mm-hmm. there was all this talk that peak oil would occur in 2005. Hmm. And it kind of didn't. Hmm. Um, part of that had to do with the unlocking of, uh, I think, shale oil and some, some unconventional ways of pulling oil out of the ground. But a lot of uh, people in the oil industry punditry felt like they had egg on their face because they were calling this peak oil and then it didn't happen Mm. and so now they're very wary of it and i think in some cases they're almost too wary of it like they would hear what you just said it's no 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 that's not gonna happen because it didn't happen before Mm. like well that maybe you know it didn't happen before but like i don't know i'm i would certainly be concerned about the the future of oil (laughs) and um i heard i heard uh get another podcast like i said i listen to a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. but there's a there's an interesting guy named luke groman who was talking about uh if you notice there's a lot of car companies that have been going really hard on electric mm-hmm. i think volkswagen mm-hmm. and another one said that Ford. they're going to be all electric by 2026 
which is really fast. Yes. Um, And he said, the reason why they're doing this is because a, a lot of people are coming to believe that in that time frame, we're going to have what he calls peak cheap oil. Mm. So it's not that oil is going to go away, but uh, the cheap oil is going to become way more scarce and mm. oil prices are going to have to rise. And we'll move into a new phase of sort of the oil era where mm. the prices are just higher. So, hmm. yeah. Okay. Wow, we went on a huge tangent from yes. Bitcoin all the way to oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so where would you like to go? So I'm going to go back to the Bitcoin thing because we mm-hmm. the reason why we got on this topic was the idea that Preston said it was all about manipulation. And I don't mean to gear away from oil. I love this topic, by the way. And I could go on and on about you know the pros and cons of oil and solar and nuclear and etc by the way nuclear i think is the way to go <laughs> just putting it out there yeah. uh just just the I waste the, the the amount of waste that we can contain for nuclear uh it, it is so much less damaging um if contained properly now if it gets out of control that's when we have an issue but technology wise we've improved quite a bit in in that realm i feel but we're not talking about that today, so we're not <laughs> going to talk about it. Maybe we should so, have a show about that, though. We should. We should. Maybe maybe in the next couple of podcasts, we, we should talk about the energy consumption and, and the different forms of energy. Anyways. And have you ever seen the HBO uh, Chernobyl show? Maybe I asked. No, I haven't, but I, I do understand that they over overly dramatize it, but I, oh, really? I highly doubt that it, it is a far away from the actual drop that really did occur in Chernobyl. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I do understand. I have a feeling that they were a lot of, uh, at least the staff in Chernobyl was in denial that, you know, Chernobyl was not, was going to go down. Uh, they were like, no, everything's fine. I can totally see that happening. Um, mm. But anyways, <laughs> we're going to the huge tangent. We're not going to get into that. So, so going back to the whole idea of manipulation and, and the reason why I had a question on that is because if, if the central bank and the Federal Reserve was already manipulating the equities market, the bond market from inception, the day one that they started, and Preston's argument was that he didn't want to put his money into this overvalued uh, marketplace because it is uh, manipulated, etc., my thinking is that then what about the investors, the value investors who actually did make it like Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, um, who, who else? Ray Dalio, for instance, you know, they they put a lot of of their time and energy in the equities market. Now, granted, Ray Dalio has more of a risk adverse approach, which I actually want to discuss in, in a couple of minutes, but they were able to find ways to overcome the system. If you know, if, if you're you're into uh, believing that the system is highly manipulated and it's against your favor, so what I'm what what I'm trying to figure out is how were they able to do it? I mean, if you read their biography or if you've listened to their interviews before, they'll tell you they came from a humble beginnings. They didn't, you know, get bestowed on with enormous amounts of wealth. Um, but now today they are retired, they're living happily, etc. What's there? What's what? What's what's the what's the argument against that? 
uh, that, that's pretty much what I'm trying to say uh, or ask, because with Preston, I believe he's 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 having a hard time. And I think this is what he said in the in the podcast that he's having a hard time finding companies that are valued like the way it was back in Brent, Ben Graham's day, Warren Buffett days and all of that. And he said that there's a better chance of going into Bitcoin but not necessary to build the wealth, but more so to store the wealth. So is, and, and like we've discussed, so Bitcoin is, is not a way to make money. It's just a way to preserve your money. And so if, if you're a value investor, and by definition, a value investor, it, it, investing itself is to put in money to grow money and make money, then there, for me, there's a contradiction there, at least to my definition of what investing should be um let's see so two things okay i think first is uh going into bitcoin now mm-hmm. probably is a way to make money um that's definitely the bitcoin investment thesis i've heard preston pish say that mm-hmm. uh anyone who gets bitcoin under a million dollars per coin will be happy um, okay so so, so, so the, but it, this is like a a, a zero sum game, right? Where if yeah. you invest, and I think we talked about this uh, podcast or two ago, but if we invested in Bitcoin now, and if we ever want to sell it, that means somebody else has to buy it, just like with regular gold. And we've never seen gold jump up to a million dollars. Well, wait a minute, right? So we've we've seen gold. You know, gold is the current market cap is uh, something like twelve trillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have seen gold go from zero to that, but okay. we weren't around when it really took off. Ah. So Bitcoin was invented in two thousand eight, mm. and uh, for if it's going to become digital gold, it's gonna have to. I mean, if it's gonna become digital gold, it's gonna have to go to twelve trillion, uh, and it's under one trillion right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think it will go beyond digital gold because it's a better store of value than gold. Okay. Um, and it's easier to move. It has a variety of things that make it better than gold. Okay. Um, there was another point you were talking about. Oh, yes. So if the Federal Reserve has been manipulating for a long time, then um, what's different now? Yeah. What's different now is the national debt. And the, so there's also like a, like, you know, when a, when a drug addict is using a drug, then oftentimes their tolerance will go up to reflect their past usage and they'll have to use more Mm -hmm. in order to get high again. So -hmm. the federal reserve has to keep escalating. And recently they've done like, I, I think it was at some point recently, it was the case that uh, 40% of all the U.S. dollars in existence had been printed within the last year. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, I, I recall hearing that. Yeah, that had never happened before. In mm-hmm. fact, I remember when it was like 30%, that was like a meme, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're escalating. And the there there is a limit. And the limit is the national debt. They don't have room to. They don't have room 
to cool the markets anymore. Mm. They they can only go hot and hotter and hotter. Mm-hmm. So they're just like dumping fuel into the reaction. They're dumping accelerant into the reaction and they can't stop dumping the, the accelerant now. Before they could. Mm-hmm. Now they can't. Hmm. So uh, that's what's different. So um, now I will say that uh, value investors, you know, if they're good, theoretically they could beat the S and P five hundred because mm-hmm. this what is going to happen is going to happen to the entire equity market. Mm-hmm. So you know, beating the entire equity market, that's kind of nice, right? Uh, there could, you know, I don't know exactly what turmoil is going to happen in the interim, but certainly companies will do better than others. That's not going to change. So let's, again, I'm having a hard time and I want to, I I really do hope that after our, our podcast series, you know, however long we're going to do this for that, I get convinced. I I really do. Mm -hmm on going into the Bitcoin route because I'm trying to learn more about it. I'm trying to understand it, but there are these questions that keeps coming to mind. And so, you know, say that the turmoil is going to happen, inflation skyrockets and we have hyperinflation and then equities market craters, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone puts their money into Bitcoin. Why can't I just put my money into gold then? Because it's a stored form of wealth, right? Just very similar to Bitcoin. So. And if I don't plan on traveling, say that during hyperinflation times and I don't have money to go on an airplane and I, and I stay in my city and town, why don't I just purchase gold now and store it in that form where I have something physical and tangible rather than on a software where you know everything's connected. I need to have electricity to run things. I need, I need to be able to access the internet. I need to do all of this stuff. And if hyperinflation kicks in and I can't afford any of that anymore, how do I access my coins? Um, See, with gold, I have it in my hand. And, yes. And, 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 and I, I get that this is an extreme scenario, but this is this is my thought process. It's like, okay, well, I, I get the whole idea of crypto. I get how it's, you know, it's a hedge against inflation, at least to my understanding. Yeah. Okay, so... so, so... So, right? It, it's a it's 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 a valid argument, at least, at least in um in in, in my in my thought process in, in my viewpoint, and so that that's what's really been like eking at me. It's like, well, and I'm sorry for interrupting. I I I I, no I, I I'm just very I'm just very like. Why not hold something tangible where if you lose all form, like your phone bill, your, your cable, your internet, your electricity, and, and you're like out outside, like, you know, and, and like, you know, how it was in 19, uh, in 1929, where everyone's lined up, you know, outside during the great depression and getting food and everything like, and, and if you needed to use that to purchase something, well, I can't really bring in a USB with all of my, key code into a store to to purchase right uh it like that that seems kind of very dangerous yeah so so um let's see so there's a few things so number one there are some bitcoiners who think that gold is still a good investment and some who don't okay 
Um, I have some gold, but I have less, a lot less than Bitcoin. So, um, you know, for some, and, and the thing about the, the thing about this thesis is that you can allocate small amounts. So if you have like 1% gold, 1% Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. and this scenario happens that we're talking about, that could be really helpful to you, you know? Okay. Um, so that's one factor, right? You don't have, mm-hmm. people don't have to necessarily be a Bitcoin bull or a gold bull and just go all 100% or 50%. You know, you can, these, this thesis can thrive on a small allocation. Okay. Um, now, Bitcoin, as far as the internet going down, um, Bitcoin is, is a very resilient network. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, even if the internet takes a big hit, uh, Bitcoin will still live. And if the internet were completely shut down, mm-hmm. Bitcoin would essentially be on pause until the internet came back up. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sorry, I, I what I, I want to clarify what I meant by internet. Like, if I couldn't have access to internet, that that's more so. I, I don't think the internet will ever shut down on a global scale, but if you can't pay for your internet bill and you can't access your internet or your phone, because you can't pay for your phone bill anymore. How do you access your wallet in crypto world? Now, so there are ways to sign to there are ways to make Bitcoin transactions without internet, and the transaction okay. will go through once the internet comes back up. Uh, that I don't know. Maybe I should do some research about how usable something like that would be, because mm-hmm. you don't get uh, confirmations from the network, mm. but um, essentially, I mean, if so, you're not talking about the whole internet or the, the no, no, just your internet. access to just it, your access, yeah. So if if your phone broke, right? You have a phone, you dropped it in the sewers one day, and it got all wet and shorted, and somehow, unluckily enough, you lost. You know, you couldn't pay for your internet bill again this is extreme hypothetical situation right and now you need to find a way to pay for something and you have you know a couple coins in uh in silver for instance versus you know a whole ton in in crypto which is you know what a lot of people are going towards right now how do you access your crypto right how would you be able to pay for that um, I think you would need some kind of backup or something. I think okay. you would need so, <laughs> so yeah, you would need access to <laughs> the electronic device or the internet in order to mm-hmm. to pay. And and I and I and I don't mean to, to switch the topic too 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 fast here, but I remember Preston saying something that um, because Bitcoin is extremely resilient, and you you just said it too uh, to the manipulation effect and all of that. Who how do you even get Bitcoin into your wallet? Is there a third company or third party company that hosts your wallet or are you downloading it directly into your USB and then uploading it? Like, like, you know, with stocks and equity, you go through a brokerage and it's, it's installed in a brokerage account that you have. So is Bitcoin the same way? And if it is, couldn't the access to that wallet be manipulated? Um, 
if yes, if you use Bitcoin that way, then absolutely. Okay. Uh, now, Bitcoin can be used in a way where you uh, hold all the power, where it and it's basically done with cryptography. Okay. So using cryptography, you have a secret piece of information called the private key. Okay. And that private key gives you the power to uh, make changes to the Bitcoin ledger. Okay. Um, now, for a lot of people, like let's say you go on Coinbase and you buy some Bitcoin, mm-hmm. that private key is held by Coinbase. Mm. And they're going to give you you know, a nice, easy user experience where you um, you just transact with it and it is kind of like a brokerage account, like they're holding it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, in that scenario, they can, you know, they can do whatever shenanigans that, that people can do when they're holding your assets for you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the future, the idea would be that more people would hold their keys and more and more people are building things that will make it easier for even non-technical people to hold their own keys. Mm. So like uh, Jack Dorsey's company square, which is now called block. Mm. They're working on a a system where uh, people can hold their own keys where they actually have a, uh, I think they'll be using the hardware wallet, which is like a separate device that you use to validate and you would actually plug it into your phone hmm. um, to make a payment over a certain amount, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to make a small amount, you just pull out your phone, you make the payment. If you want to make a large amount, you would have to verify by plugging in the device, maybe putting in a pin code and stuff. Hmm. Um, but that would, in that case, you have your private key. Hmm. Um, and I mean, in that scenario, the idea would be that... Uh, there are multiple private keys that needed to sign. So there would be, they're going to help share the burden of holding the private key by basically to make a transaction, you'll need two of three keys and their company will hold one of them for you. And that means they can act as a backup, but they can't move your money. Hmm. And then you hold the other two. One is in the dongle that you plug into your phone and the other one is on the phone itself. And so if you lose one of those, you can go to the company and use theirs as long as you, you know, maybe verify your identity or something like that. Hmm. Well, at least there's some fail safes. Um, yes. But I'm just uh, for, for as it gets easier for people who are not technical, like myself in the in the, you know, uh, computer world, um, I, I feel like as it gets easier to make those keys it's going to be much easier to crack those keys as well. Um, but that's just not necessarily like okay. that's part of the, part of the scheme of uh, splitting it into three. Okay. Uh, is the same. And also using a, a piece of hardware. So hardware wallets are uh, things that have a chip that has the private key on it mm. in such a way that you can't really get the private key out. Mm. So, um, so those are those are security features, and the idea, what what they're working towards is something that is highly secure and as usable as possible. Mm. You know? so trying to find 
that combination. I was going to make another point about questions of the internet, whether mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, losing access to the internet overall. Mm-hmm. This applies to everything that uses the internet. So a lot of people are seeing a future where people don't carry any sort of money in their wallet. They carry, or even credit cards, but instead they carry like Apple pay, you know, mm. or Google pay. That's really what those companies are going for. Mm. And again, that's subject to the same thing where if you lose your phone or something, you can't use it. But a lot of people are kind of like, well, how likely is that to happen? Really? Right. Mm-hmm. Like when is the last time that happened? So, um, so it's just, a, it's trade-offs essentially. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, what I really found interesting about this, um, the reason why Preston and not, not meaning to change it again, but I'm, I'm, I have no, so many fine. thoughts in my mind and the, and thank you for sharing, um, just the key understanding and all of that. But the reason why this, I found this super interesting is because Preston didn't change his opinion until he read about Ray Dalio and his all weather portfolio and and how ray dalio allocated some of his wealth into gold uh and and bitcoin Mm -hmm. and so you know and i can't help but think as a value investor if i if i am planning for a severe cold winter season uh in, in the in the equities market then it makes sense to put your money that can be stored wealth right like a bitcoin or gold for instance i mean right here i have i have the book uh tony robbins money master the game i don't know if you've ever read it but Mm. in in tony robbins book he actually interviewed ray dalio and ray dalio gave the average american a formula right so in this formula is an asset allocation and that's what ray dalio is known for he's a father of asset allocation where he puts 30% of his portfolio into equities markets, stocks, 15% into intermediate U.S. bonds, 40% into long-term bonds for you know a, a hedge against fluctuation, 7.5% into commodities, and 7.5% into gold. And over the span of the last 30, 40 years, that this portfolio, when you know, re- reallocated every single year annually, has made a return of 10% approximately every year. And they've only lost maybe 1% at the most uh, within the last 30 years and probably down three times in 30 years or something like that. So, And so the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about is I've heard Kevin O'Leary, I've watched a lot of his Bitcoin crypto talk, and he says that he's highly invested into this, right? Ray Dalio purchased some, I believe. And now Preston is is fully into the Bitcoin route. And so as they are, as they understand money, and as Ray Dalio and uh, Preston are more of a value investor, Kevin O'Leary, I'm not too sure if he's a value investor uh, or not. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard him specify his investment style. Uh, I know he's made a lot of his wealth through creation of uh, the learning company and all that, but I can't help but think that with them going into Bitcoin, they're hoping 
to build that enormous wealth to one day sell it and then reinvest it back into the equities market, which we just talked about. And so are they encouraging or all three of them encouraging everyone to go into Bitcoin so that they can sell it while it's going up and then reinvest that into back into the equities market? Like you said, that as the you know bond rates go up and the equities market goes down, it revalues itself. So value investing becomes a thing again where they're going to use that and repurchase shares. And if that's the case, because Preston was all talking um, a lot think, about fiat money. First off, when I think of Ray Dalio, I think of him as a macro investor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about value investing is um, it is you don't have to be a value investor exclusively. Right? Oh, yeah. Of course. Personally, I'm a big mixer of styles, you know. Okay. Um, I like to, to go to all the wells, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, maybe I don't know what Ray Dalio would call himself. Maybe you would call himself a value investor. Maybe, but, maybe uh, more of a risk adverse, uh, risk adverse investor. <laughs> I think. Yeah, he's very risk. He hates losing. Uh, that's for sure. He hates mm-hmm. losing money. So, yeah, I know there are people who call themselves macro investors. Mm. Um, I I think maybe that would have to include like uh, foreign markets and foreign bonds okay. but i don't know but he the fact that he is that ray dalio is allocated across asset classes and that mm-hmm. he's uh you know i think of him as as yeah having that stability right mm-hmm. finding growth with stability and you know which is a, a quite a feat of investing alchemy mm-hmm. um but now the idea that that bitcoin is going to go up and then you would want to sell it and buy equities uh, I associate that mainly with Preston Pish. Okay. I think, um, I think, I don't know exactly what's in the mind of uh, Ray Dalio and Kevin O'Leary. Well, um, I mean, I've heard a little more of what Ray Dalio has said about it. And basically, I think he he has it as a gold esque. Yes. Type of thing. Well, and and I don't mean to interrupt, but Mm -hmm. I want to get this in because their position is that they're not trying to grow money anymore. They have more than enough. I think their position is they're trying to maintain that wealth and grow it little by little, just like Warren Buffett does. So they're not going to be super aggressive with trying to build wealth. And I think the difference between Ray Dalio and Kevin O'Leary versus Preston is that Preston is just like you and me, where we are very focused on trying to grow a generational type of wealth so that you know we can pass it down to our children and our children's children etc mm-hmm. and so i think the strategies between the two might be fairly different and speaking of strategies that's the whole point of this podcast so <laughs> yeah so now i would say with uh bitcoin you could almost think of it as having there's going to be two sort of eras of bitcoin okay the arrow the like in the far future or Mm -hmm. yes at some point in the far future it will be kind of like gold in the sense that it is considered a relatively safe asset and it will be boring from a price perspective Mm. it may go up one or two percent a year it may go up at the rate gdp goes up or something like that Mm -hmm. um i mean theoretically it could fluctuate like gold did under a gold standard Mm-hmm. But it's still over the, if you smooth out those fluctuations, it, it's more boring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be the later 
epoch of Bitcoin. But first, we got to get there. Mm. And so the question is, what price in today's dollars would Bitcoin be before it gets that plateau? And I think Preston Pish would probably say over two million. Mm. Uh, which is why I think he said anyone who gets in under a million is, is going to be pretty happy. Hmm. And so if he does decide to sell Bitcoin and then reinvest that funds into the equities market, well, he's selling to get fiat money again and then reinvesting that into the stock market. Uh, no. So what he his idea is when he wants to reinvest in businesses okay is when they are earning bitcoin oh because bitcoin. then okay. they will be beating bitcoin by definition right if they're profitable oh. in bitcoin terms then they're better than bitcoin right okay um yeah hmm. and one last thing before um i know we're hitting the one hour or close to the one hour mark here but I, I'm kind of curious about this because, okay, so can you help me understand a little bit more about the Bitcoin? So Bitcoin, you can buy fractional bits yes. of Bitcoin, correct? Yes, you can buy very tiny fractions. Very tiny fractions. And so what makes that any different from fiat money where with fractional pieces of bitcoin and it's not like gold where the smaller it is it eventually disappears with bitcoin we can divide bitcoin one bitcoin into a hundred thousand pieces and that's going to be worth some monetary value so what would if the idea is to stop that hyperinflation type and if i'm able to keep dividing those fractions even more instead of a hundred thousand fractional bitcoins in one bitcoin i can go to a million fractional bitcoins into one bitcoin wouldn't that do wouldn't that be the same effect as what it's happening right now where we're constantly printing money um right now why why not it's very different i think one of the analogies that bitcoiners use for that is pizza you know okay um, as a scientist or as a man of science, I think you're aware that you could, in theory, have a mass of a very, very small amount of pizza, right? Yes. You could have a microscopic like piece of the cheese, you yes. know, and um, that is not more pizza, right? Just because you can divide it doesn't mean it's more. Well, well here's the, here's the thing. See? Yes, you have one Bitcoin and say that it goes to $2 million of Bitcoin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So the people who purchase it now, right. And this is, I think this is Preston's argument. The people who purchase it now are going to be sitting on a mountain of wealth later, mm-hmm. potentially, because that is the agreed price of Bitcoin. Well, the reason why a lot of people are going into Bitcoin right now is because they are. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm not trying to generalize everything, but this is the argument I've been hearing a lot. They are upset with the wealth gap where a whole uh, a minority of people are controlling and manipulating the markets because they have influence, they have power, they have that money. They're the top shareholder of the company and they're able to have more voting power. Yes. And so um, I wouldn't say the shareholder of a company. Um, I think what really the sort of 
inequality thing that Bitcoiners would be upset about is particularly money printing, particularly okay. people who are able to create new money. They're the first people that get the new money. Okay. And then they, there's this issue called the Cantillon effect. Okay. Where when you first create some new money and you go out and buy something with it, its value is equal to the value of the money before it was printed. Okay. What what needs to happen is that money needs to move into the market and move around before the prices change, mm. right? The prices don't change until that money goes in. So if I'm, say, BlackRock, I'm close okay. to the money printer, I get the fresh money and I buy houses mm. and the prices of the houses go up. Mm -hmm. But I'm not worried about it because I just got the fresh money and bought the houses. Now everyone else is going to have to pay more Mm -hmm. for the houses hmm. so what bitcoiners are upset about is this monetary grift hmm. what bitcoiners are not upset about inequality most of them hmm. are not upset about hey that guy's rich it's like well you know what okay they're rich you know like that that's a good thing they, okay. a lot of them would say a lot of them have that sort of capitalist attitude that someone who provided a lot of value should be rich mm -hmm. and they should have capital to allocate you know mm. Okay, well then, I gotta listen to more Bitcoin podcasts because <laughs> the, the, from what I've been hearing, and I, there's it's a very small, and I'm gonna tell the viewers and the listeners, hey, I've I've only watched a couple. That was what I was picking up. Okay, mm -hmm. and I'm glad, Sean, that you've corrected me on that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn this because I've, I've been very skeptical since I've heard about Bitcoin back in 2011. It's been taking me, you know, 12, 11, 12 years just to learn about this stuff. So mm -hmm. now let me add a uh, sort of caveat or an extra piece of information, which is, okay. this is uh, like, I mostly agree with Preston about these issues and, okay. you know, people would call us Bitcoin maximalists. Okay. That we are really focused on Bitcoin and we're not much interested in the other coins. Mm -hmm. In the realm of the other coins, you'll find all kinds of opinions. Mm. And I think the inequality thing is probably something that uh, came from the other coins, other, other crypto spheres. Uh, okay. There's all kinds of different political opinions about crypto, right? That's usually uh, when people use the word crypto, that means. They are, tend to be more open to the broader spectrum of these new items. Mm. Um, and they are thinking, you know, some people, yeah, might create a new cryptocurrency to address inequality. Mm. But um, so I personally am, I'm not necessarily skeptical of other tokens, but I'm very skeptical of other blockchains. Okay. I think bl blockchain is a very unique uh, thing that, probably is only useful for bitcoin hmm. um but you know that's kind of just my opinion um i'm not i don't hold those kind of opinions with certainty but okay. that's certainly where i'm leading um so yeah i just wanted to add that caveat that there are definitely different opinions about cryptocurrency there's some people who think oh ethereum is going to replace bitcoin you know and mm -hmm. you should invest in that and not invest in bitcoin there's all kinds of ideas out there right mm. um so yeah this is Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. We've been talking for about an hour. <laughs> oh, 
I think this might be a good place to stop. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I got to absorb this information. And I'm hoping that everyone listening <laughs> had learned a lot today. So, or at least reviewed a lot. So, what say you? Yeah, we end it. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I guess I'm just going to do the outro now. So, uh, we're gonna, just going to call it here today's for today's episode, everyone. So, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, until the next episode, remember, don't trade a dollar for a penny. All right. Take care.